Would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude? We're coming to the end this morning of uh, this epic little journey. It's been a a short journey, but I think still uh, an epic journey. I think we've been going for um, seven weeks, and it's been epic really uh, because of the, I think, the intensity of the information, the intensity of the subject matter that Jude has been working through. Uh, You can hear it in the the passion and in the um, quick succession of what he says as you go through the metaphors that he uh, draws from, uh, the various aspects of life that he uh, uses, uh, analogies from, in order to um, push upon us something uh, as forcefully as he can. And this is something that he has wanted to push upon us very forcefully. Uh, He's been dealing with a a very serious matter of um, false teachers, false believers that have come in among them unnoticed and he wants to plead with them to uh, contend for the faith, to contend for the faith that has once uh, been delivered for the saints, to to keep themselves in the love of God, which is what we spoke about last week, to um, build themselves up in the most holy faith, to be praying in the Holy Spirit, to be waiting for the mercy that is to be revealed, to be uh, showing mercy to those who doubt and so on. Many things that he has been pushing upon the believers that he is speaking to. It's this last portion of the text, uh, which I think in many ways is the highest point in the book. These last two verses of the book of Jude. And I want to just read them to you. After going through all of this, he says this in the end, in verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Many of you would have been able to quote that almost off by heart. It has been such a, uh, a blessing in the church for um, the last 2,000 years, these words, and it's used regularly to end our services, along with the many other doxologies that we find throughout the scripture. And um, it's, it's always a challenge, I think, to deal with a, a portion of scripture like this, because I'm aware that what's going to happen today is unclean hands are going to pick up something perfect and hold it out for you and try to get you to see something glorious in it. And there's a a sense in which I want to apologise for the way in which I'll make it a bit dirty just by doing that. In some ways, it's the sort of thing that you just want to read and meditate on rather than really go through and plough through uh, and touch with, with your own hands, as it were. It's the sort of thing that is perfect and glorious and worthy of just saying and then sitting down. And yet, the task of the preacher is to do that. It is to try and expound, it is to try to um, show forth the glory of what's being said. And it's with that job in mind that I um, come to this with a, a certain sense of apology and a certain sense of fear, because I don't know that I can do that, because it is just so glorious as it stands. But I'd ask you to just pray with me as we uh, 
begin to do that task and ask for God's help that we might see just how glorious this promise, this passage is. Father God, we do ask for your grace. Lord, as we pick up this precious gem and try to hold it to the light that it might sparkle gloriously before us, Lord, I pray that you would do this work. Lord, I pray that we would see just how marvellous it is that in this dark and sinful world we have a promise that will sustain us, that God Almighty who made us and saved us will keep us to the end. Father, how marvellous a promise this is. May we worship you because of it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the subject of these last two verses is the keeping power of God. More formally, you could say this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Jude has been talking about the robbing power of Satan. That's what Jude has largely been about. The robbing power of Satan. But he's going to finish with the keeping power of God. Along the way, he has dealt with our own responsibility in that. The work that we must do, keeping ourselves in the love of God, feeling the love of God, experiencing it, building ourselves up in the faith, praying, waiting, and so on. He's told us about the danger of false teachers, the danger of false believers creeping in, perverting the gospel of grace into sensuality and so on. He's done all of these things. And yet, if he had just left it there, we would be in a terribly discouraging um, state of mind. If he had simply said, here's a danger and here's what you should do, I think we ought to worry. We ought to be concerned. If he had simply said, there's something that's trying to take you, there's something that's trying to rob you, keep yourself. Then we ought to be afraid. Because I don't think we can do that. We need the keeping power of God. If you knew your own weakness, and I think some of you do, if you knew how easily you were led astray into sin and temptation, you would realise how terrifying it would be to be left in a state of self-dependence, self-reliance, without this promise of God's keeping grace, keeping power. I think it would be fair to say that without God's keeping power, all of you would fall away. All of us would apostatize without God's keeping power. Consider how powerful sin is compared to you. Consider how deceitful Satan is and how you might stand up against him without God's grace. Consider that. Consider that the only person apart from Christ And he had some advantages. The only person apart from Christ who was born without sin fell to Satan. You now born under sin, how will you sustain yourself? The answer is only by the keeping power of God. By his promise to keep you, to sustain you to the end. And that is what Jude leaves us with before he finishes his letter. Now, it's also worth recognising 
that this text is not ultimately about God's keeping power. That's actually not the main ultimate point of the text. The main and ultimate point of the text is God's glory. The main point is worship, doxology. These promises are set within the context of doxology. It is now to him who is able to keep you. Now to him, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and so on. This is what Jude is really getting at. And this is what all theology really ought to get us to, is worship and doxology. Explosion of praise, giving glory to God for what he has done and what he has said. This is a common feature of the New Testament um, letters and uh, throughout the scriptures. In fact, this spontaneous, though not that spontaneous, explosion into worship at the thought of what has just been said or what's being said. And I wonder if this is what happened to Jude. He's, he's given them the warning. He's sounded the warning that these false believers are there. He's given them the job that they must do. And then he has probably paused and thought, I really want to and need to leave on a positive note. I need to give them a hope to cling to. And then he starts to think probably about the promises of God. What God has said he will do, how God has said he will sustain, how he will keep, how he will protect. Maybe his mind went to passages like uh, John and chapter 10. Let me just read that for you very quickly. John and chapter 10. And verse 28. Jesus says, And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I wonder if Jude was reflecting on that. I wonder if Jude was reflecting on Philippians 1 and verse 6. Where Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if he was thinking about these things. And before he could even articulate them, he was worshipping. Before he could even put his pen down and start to write about the keeping power of God, he was already thinking about the glory of God because of his keeping power. So he starts his statement in verse 24. Now to him, glory to him, praise to him, now, before all time, and forever, And praise to him because he is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is what the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is supposed to do. It is supposed to lead us not to a a place of arrogance about our great theology. It's not supposed to lead us to a place of apathy, as if we could now just do anything we want because we're going to be kept. It's not also to simply lead us to a place of comfort, though it is supposed to do that. It is supposed to lead us to a place of doxology, of worship for what God has done and is doing through his keeping power. So what I want to do uh, this morning is just look at three things that the text gives us. I'm wanting to look at what we are kept from, what we're kept from, uh, who we're kept by, and for what reason we are kept. So, kept for what? 
Kept by whom? Oh, sorry, kept from what? Kept by whom and kept for what? Okay. So what are we being kept from? Who's keeping us and what reason are we being kept? That's the structure for today. So kept from what? I'm pleased this morning to have an opportunity with this text particularly in front of us to give a clear uh, definition and explanation of this doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. And this text is, I think, very helpful in clarifying that and giving us a clear picture of what's going on in that doctrine. In essence, what the doctrine says, the perseverance of the saints, is that if you are truly a believer, if you are truly saved, if you're truly in the grace of God, then by God's grace you will persevere to the end. That by God's power you will be kept and you will persevere through to the end. You'll be saved. That no true believer can or will ever lose their salvation or fall away indefinitely. Now, there are objections to this doctrine. Uh, objections that say, well, if this is the case, then doesn't that mean that we can just do whatever we want? We can just live however we want. If we are uh, just going to be saved, if God is going to keep us to the end, then why can't we just live however we want? Why can't we just sin whenever we want? And, and it's not a problem at all. Live in disbelief even. And to be fair to those who offer this critique, that is exactly what some people who claim to believe in the perseverance of the saints hold to. That is exactly what they say. There are some who would say that in fact you can accept Jesus as your saviour and not as your Lord and still make it. That you can in fact uh, make a profession of faith, have your sins washed away in that moment, and then go about your life however you want, as sinfully as you want. You can uh, reject Jesus Christ. You can even um, uh, claim to not be a Christian anymore. And yet, still make it in the end. You might not uh, enter heaven quite as triumphantly as others do, but you'll still make it in the end. This is how it's being taught uh, by a number of people even today. That is not the reform view. That is not the biblical view. That is not the view that Jude would hold to either. It is clearly not the view that Jude would hold to. Why on earth would Jude spend all of these verses articulating what you ought to do, articulating the warning of apostasy, the warning of false believers leading you astray, if he was then to turn around and say, but you know what, it actually doesn't matter. <laughs> as long as you've made the profession, you'll get in at the end. That's not what he's saying. Why are these false believers uh, doomed to destruction for perverting the grace of God into sensuality? That is the reason they're doomed to destruction. because they have seen the grace of God, they have accepted the grace of God, they've made some profession of faith, and yet they are doomed to destruction. Because in Jude's mind it is plainly clear that a profession of faith is not evidence necessarily of possession of faith that you are definitely a believer. Now the reform view is not 
that you'll be saved regardless of your actions. It is not that you are simply kept from hell or kept for heaven. And then you can live however you like. Jude makes it clear what it is that we are kept from. What is it that we are kept from? Stumbling. It is not just that you that heaven is being kept open for you and stumble as much as you like. It is that you are being kept for heaven and prevented from stumbling. Now, we need to define what is being said here, what the word stumbling means. It's not saying uh, God is going to keep you from any sin ever or from any trip up or any, or any failing. That's not what it's saying. The context uh, defines what Jude means. He's saying that God is going to keep you from stumbling into apostasy, from stumbling into the folly of these false believers, of these false teachers, to abandon the faith completely. That's what Jude is saying. God is going to keep you from doing that. And he's going to preserve you and protect you. The keeping power of God is going to keep you believing and obeying. It's going to keep you going toward heaven. So this is the the difference between the heretical view of once saved, always saved. That if you have uh, made a profession of faith and the, um, the pastor has said you're saved on the basis of that profession that uh, therefore you can expect to enter heaven regardless of how you live. That is the, the once saved, always saved false theology. What this is saying is that not that heaven is going to be kept for you, but that you are going to be kept for heaven. That's the perseverance of the saints. And the word kept, I think, is very helpful for us as well. What does it mean that God keeps you? Well, the word keep is a military word. It's a word to do with protecting, to do with fighting for, keeping. It is what God does for you. God protects you. God defends you. God keeps you. And he keeps you believing and persevering in faith. The perseverance of the saints is about God's power causing you to persevere. That is how it's always articulated in the scriptures. It's not simply that the scripture says... Uh, once you are saved, you're always going to be saved. The scripture is plainly teaching the manner in which God is going to keep you saved. Such that you will persevere in faith. You will persevere in believing. So, for example, what we just read in Philippians 1, 6. Uh, he who started a good work in you will see it to completion. This is not a verse that says, he who started a good work in you will abandon you for a while and then you'll still make it in the end. This is a verse that says, He who started the good work will see it through to completion. Will continue that work within you. Will keep you persevering in faith. That's what it says. Another one, 1 Peter and chapter 1 and verse 5. By God's power, we are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. How are you being guarded? Through faith. You are being guided through your faith. God is keeping you in faith, in faith, in believing for the salvation that is ready to be revealed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 6. God will sustain us till the end guiltless in the day of our Lord. He is going to sustain you guiltless to the end. The Lord works continually in us 
It is not just that the gates of heaven are being kept open for you, regardless of what path you decide to walk down. It is that you are being kept on the path. Does that make sense? This is crucially important. God is keeping us. God is building us. God is walking with us. God is preserving us. Now, another objection that is leveled against the perseverance of the saints is, well, if we're going to persevere and if God is going to keep you to the end, then why all the warnings about apostasy? And the answer to that is actually very simple. It is through the warnings that God keeps you. How do you keep your children from danger? By warning them about the danger. Now, the difference, of course, is that we can warn our children about the danger, but we can't reach into their little hearts and make them genuinely afraid of that danger and cause them to actually steer clear of that danger. Our children may still go into danger. Yet God is such a good parent, such a good father, that he reaches into our very hearts and causes us to fear the danger, causes us to see the warning, causes us to flee from it. That That is the promise of God and how he keeps us persevering in faith. I really like the um, analogy that Jude uses uh, of uh, Korah's rebellion. Um, I think it's a wonderful analogy for the perseverance of the saints. Uh, He talks about these individuals as being uh, like Korah and perishing in Korah's rebellion. It's an Old Testament story uh, about a group of individuals who rebelled against uh, Moses and Aaron. And uh, the consequences for this rebellion were that the earth literally opened up and swallowed their tents. <laughs> and they went down into, into Sheol alive, it says. Uh, I don't think they lived very long after they went down. Um, but the warning that was given uh, to the people was, move away from their tents. <laughs> right? So God says, get away from the tents because this is about to happen. Now what if somebody who you know, believed in sort of once saved, always saved, decided, well, God's promised to save me regardless, so I'm just going to stay beside this tent. I'm just going to hang out in their tent, uh, stay close to it, and I'll be fine regardless. You're not going to be saved. The earth is actually going to open. Everything above the hole is going to fall into the hole, regardless of what theology you've got in your mind at the time. God's persevering, keeping power was to actually warn and cause the people to genuinely fear the hole that was about to open up and cause them to move away from the tent. That was the keeping power of God, causing them to really see, to really fear, to really believe that this was going to happen and I need to be out of there. God keeps us from stumbling, keeps us from apostasy, keeps us from false teachers by stirring up genuine fear of false teachers. Right? Genuine fear of the impact that they might have on us. That is the way that we are kept. That is the way that we are sustained. Now one other thing people might say. You know, I have a friend who professed faith, walked with the Lord for many years and then then apostatized and then abandoned the faith. Now doesn't walk with the Lord, now says that they're not even a Christian. What am I to make of that? Am I to continue to believe in this preserving power of God to keep his children? Yes, you are. Because the Bible does make it clear that there is such a thing as a false believer. Somebody who professed faith but did not possess that faith. Just a couple of texts very quickly. I don't want to spend a long time on this, but uh, 
John, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. John is talking about uh, a group that have um, become apostate, who have abandoned the faith. And he says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What's John saying? He's saying the fact that they left is evidence that they were never really part of us. He's not saying they went out from us and then they stopped being part of us. He's saying the fact they left is evidence that they were never really in. The fact that they went out is evidence they were never in. One more verse from uh, Matthew in chapter 7. This is immediately after the, um, the warning about uh, false teachers and false believers. Let me just find it. This is a verse that you're probably familiar with. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus does not say, depart from me because I once knew you, but then you fell away. He says, depart from me because I never knew you. Even when you were making your profession, even when you were saying, Lord, Lord, even when you were doing mighty deeds in the name of Jesus, I never knew you. The Bible is consistent. Those who truly possess faith, not just profess it, but possess it, will not fall away. And those who do fall away never really had it. That is the plain truth of Scripture. Okay. That's what are we kept from. I want to talk just briefly about who we're kept by. And we come to verse 24. Who is it that's keeping us? It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who's the him in that verse? We might think, well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's keeping us. But actually, no, it's not Jesus. Not in this verse. Now, Jesus does keep us. We know that from other passages of Scripture. Uh, We just read uh, a moment ago a glorious text from uh, John chapter 10 that no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus keeps you. No doubt. But Jude is not talking about Jesus keeping you in this passage. Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus certainly finishes your faith. He keeps you. No doubt. But Jude isn't talking about Jesus in this passage. You might think, well, maybe Jesus, maybe Jude is talking about the Holy Spirit. No, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit either. Now, the Holy Spirit does keep you. There are passages that talk about the Spirit keeping you and the importance of his work. Ephesians 4 and chapter uh, 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is the role the Spirit plays. Ephesians 1 and 13. In him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance. It is the Spirit that seals you, that guarantees your inheritance. And it is the Spirit who does the hands-on stuff to keep you persevering. But who is it that's being 
referred to here as the Him who keeps you. It is God the Father. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's talking about God the Father. God the Father will keep you. Now why is that important to notice? For this reason, I think we often have a wrong view of the work of God the Father in our salvation. We think of God the Father simply as the one that we are rescued from, rather than the one who's doing the rescuing. We think of God the Father as the grumpy one, the wrathful one, the one who's going to hold us to account for our sins. But uh, isn't it wonderful that we've got Jesus, who's the nice one, who comes and dies for our sins, who now stands in heaven, uh, pleading with the Father to not execute his wrath against us. I think this is a view that people sometimes have. Isn't it good that we have the, have the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf in our hearts, uh, calling the Father down all the time? Isn't it good that Jesus is standing in the gap always, preventing the wrath of the Father coming to us? This is rubbish. This is not what Scripture teaches. For one thing, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just as angry about sin as the Father is. That's important to know. But equally, the Father is just as invested in your salvation and in your perseverance as the Son and the Spirit are. See, it is not as if the Father is just looking down from heaven, waiting for you to make a mistake, making you think, well, I better shape up because he's going to be angry at my sin. And he might just cast me out, but, but it's a good thing that Jesus is there because he's going to keep reminding the Father of the covenant of grace that he's made and of the death that he has uh, performed for my sin, and that will appease the wrath of the Father. It is true that Jesus is always interceding for us, but he is interceding for us because the love of the Father put him there. The love of the Father for you. Put Jesus there as your high priest. Who appoints the high priest? Who appoints the high priest? God. As a mediator for us. See, we need to remember that it is the love of God that sent Jesus to take the wrath of God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It is God who demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the love of the Father that puts Jesus in the place of high priest. It is the love of the Father that sends the Holy Spirit as our seal and as our guarantee. It is the love of the Father that sustains you in perseverance throughout your whole life. God is not just waiting for you to trip up, but... Isn't it wonderful Jesus stops it from happening? No. God is making you persevere. God the Father is making you persevere. God the Son is making you persevere. God the Spirit is making you persevere. God is for you. The keeping power of God the Father. We are in fact saved from the wrath of God by the love of God for his people. Finally, what are we kept for? 
What are we kept from? That was the first one. Who are we kept by? That's the second one. What are we kept for? Two quick things. The Jew tells us we are kept for our good. And we are kept for his glory. And when I say we are kept for our good, I mean, we, we say that in our prayers. We say that in our conversation. We don't really get what that means. That we are kept for our good. Let me read this to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Did you hear that? With great joy. You know, in this life, we have no idea what joy really is. What great joy really is. We just get the smallest of sample of joy in this life compared to what we will experience when we stand before the presence of his glory with great joy. You just don't know what that's like. And I think it's good that you don't know what that's like. Do you know why? Because I think if you really knew what it was like, you would be looking for excuses to check out early. I think you would stop looking both ways when you cross the road. Just thinking, well, it doesn't really matter if I get hit by a car. I'm going to great joy standing before the glory of God. This is something that is so worth looking forward to and so praising God for. I think the reason that we'll have this immense joy standing before the presence of his glory is because two things will have happened. Number one, we will be blameless. Actually blameless, actually sinless. No more sin even in our practice, even in our hearts, even in the manner in which we exist. We are now legally justified, but we are not just in our practice. We understand that. One day we will be. One day we'll be glorified. And there'll be nothing holding us back from seeing the glory of God, the beauty of God. Our sin won't distract us, won't hold us back, won't cause pride to well up in our soul, to stop us from seeing how beautiful He is. That'll be gone. And you'll be able to stand before the glory of His presence. No veil. No hand of God protecting us from seeing his full glory. Just God's full glory. And you'll see it and you will experience the greatest joy you've ever experienced. There'll be so much joy in heaven for so many reasons. But the chief of all joys will be standing before the throne of God. Seeing his glory. Singing of his praises. You know, you think about heaven as being you know, an eternal church service. How boring would that be? Wait till you get there. Wait till you get there. There'll be many things other than going to church in heaven. Lots of joyful things. But every morning when you wake up in heaven, I mean, I'm not, I don't know if you'll wake up in heaven. I don't know how that works. But when you, every day, the thing you'll look forward to most is going to the throne of God and standing before his glory, blameless and with great joy. He is keeping you for that. That one day you might be presented before him, blameless with great joy. Secondly, we are being kept for that day for his glory. It's for our good, for our joy, but for his glory. Verse 25. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, be glory majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Ultimately, the reason that you're being kept by God, by being kept in faith, being kept persevering, actually has nothing to do with you. 
The ultimate reason is that he may receive glory and majesty and dominion. And that he may receive it from us in our praise and our worship. That he may receive it from us And that we may say, glory to you, before all time, before any of this happened, glory to you. And now, in this moment, glory to you, and forevermore. That's why he's doing it. You know, I, think one of, I think this is actually one of the strongest arguments in favour of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Is that it is for God's glory. Because you see, if perseverance of the saints wasn't true... If it was possible to lose your salvation, if it was possible to fall into apostasy if you're a true believer, and that happened, God would lose glory. God who has saved you, God who is working in you, and then you fall away, how could God not lose glory if that happened? Or, what if you could fall away and didn't, and made it all the way there, at least partly under your own strength? Now some glory goes to you, because you made it. He helped, but you made it. No. The perseverance of the saints is for our good and for his glory. That all glory may go to God. The keeping power of God is ultimately about him and his glory. Which is why we ought to put the utmost faith in it. Because God will not be robbed of his glory. God will see you there. God will get you there. God will get that joy, that great joy into you through your blameless standing before him that he might be glorified and that we might praise God and glorify God forever and ever and ever because of what he has done in getting you there. So that when you stand before God, you don't think, isn't it good that I made it? You'll stand there and you'll say, isn't it good? That God saved me. That God got me here. Praise God. Every day. Forever and ever. We've come to the end of the book of Jude. I've tried to hold up the diamond at the end and get it to shine for you. Let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are humbled and led to a place of worship and love because of what we have seen in this passage. Father, we thank you for your sustaining grace and power and love in our lives. Father, we freely admit how weak we are and how quick we are to stumble and fall and to move away from you, but by your keeping grace and keeping power, we are safe. We are safe. Father, may this motivate in us such a love for you, such a worship for you as nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.